This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Check this out. It is free. No, I'm serious. It's free, 100%. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor then distributes that podcast for you, and you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can also make money from that podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hey friends, today we are sharing a special episode that is drastically different than normal. This show will contain sensitive subject matter including substance abuse and suicide. If you or someone you love is struggling, we will include links to resources in our notes. This was an important conversation and we were glad to have had it. <laughs> you guys hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. perfect. How's everyone doing? Good, how you doing? Oh. I'm doing all right. Um, I know this is kind of like weird. Uh, stakes, oh, there you are. Um, so what I decided to do is A, um, which you guys, like if, as I'm like telling my story or whatever, if you guys want to just throw something in the chat, like or anything that is a question or anything that'll like fill in any gaps that you think, like I'll just, you know, pay attention to that and sort of fill that in. Yeah. Um, but I did want to sort of like uh, start off by breaking the ice and you guys need to like talk to me a little bit. And uh, anybody have any interesting things going on this weekend? <laughs> just some Before London calling podcast guy being a dick. What's that? <laughs> just a London <laughs> podcast guy being a dick. Right. What is that? What What was that all about? Like, I just kind of stepped in there thinking it would be kind of funny. And then like, whoa, this guy's really hating on Chris Cody. Yeah. I kept waiting for the funny and it just never came. Never came. Yeah. It's insane. It's insane. What? Uh, like, I don't even know what anybody's beef with uh, with Cody is. Yeah, it's. I don't. The entire it. show. Everybody needs to do their part to make it what it is. Like, if you if you love the show, it's back the fuck off. Yeah, right. no, it's a whole thing. Like, hurt people, hurt people, and that's what I think is the problem here. Yeah. Well, well, also, it seems like a lot of people hate listening to Levitard. I hate the yeah. show. Well, they stop <laughs> listening. Like, yeah. why are you wasting your time and our time by like? Complaining about because then what are you gonna bitch about? I don't understand why people have eighty five thousand things to bitch about, Danielle. You know that. (laughs) You think that (laughs) you think that like um all these other ESPN lineup shows have this much like discussion outside of their own show, you know, amongst their own fans. A podcast (laughs) sports center after hours would be so poor. Yeah. Yeah. That's what makes people replaceable is when it's not who's saying it, it's you know, what you're saying is just every single day like any anybody can can have these discussions and say oh who where'd you hear that from oh i don't know somewhere on sports center as opposed to or somewhere on espn as opposed to the levitard conversation it's a totally different conversation there you go so true yep. all right this is, is, steak, also- is steak in i saw him there 
I think he said he had to he drop off. Like, he's, I think he's switching from his phone to his laptop real quick. He just got, no he just got home. No worries. This is also weird to do like after um, like Sunday brunch situation. I've kind of just been sitting at home sobering up for about two hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, have a few more. Yeah, Throw no, some I'm content good. out there. <laughs> mm. All right. So I think I'm just going to get started and just like – Start mentioning um, why I'm doing this. And, um, and like I said, if you guys have anything, if you want to just throw it in the chat, just feel free. Um, before I really start, actually, it's funny because I've been, um, I tell people all the time, like I'm kind of an open book. And I had this like uh, podcast idea. It's called TMI, Too Much Izzy. And it was either, <laughs> and if you throw a comma in there, it's like, also, it's too much, Izzy. Like, you know, don't ask me those questions. But I feel like if you just get into like uh, anything that's just, nothing's off limits and you just kind of like speak and, uh, about anything, I think it's a lot of relatable stuff, you know? And I think that's something that um, people would pick up on, but whatever. Um, I think a lot, I don't know how much of you guys, um, but I know a lot of people uh, knew a lot about my personal story through like, um, around the horn and anything like, you know, my coming out in 2015 and, and that being really public and, um, you know, around the horn really helping me out and just picking it up and just making a kind of a big deal out of it. And, um, the reason I sort of wanted to fill in the gaps on that, right. I wanted to, you know, because between then and now, I think, you know, enough of you guys know, but I don't, you know, who the hell am I, right? People don't know what, people don't follow my story. But since then, you know, I've been divorced and, and I think there was a lot of um, just questions as to like how that happens. And, um, and so I feel like just sort of filling those gaps and, and especially now, um, there's just a lot of lessons to be learned, I think, from it and just a lot of helpful little uh, things just from sharing. And so I just wanted to do that. And so, um, you know, for those who don't know, uh, I'm gay and I have, uh, I was married back in 2015. And I think, and I, like I said earlier, like I think a lot of people just got introduced to that through ATH and through, you know, when I, <laughs> I, um, and I've got to tell sort of to be able to tell what I wanted to say, I feel like I need to fill in all the gaps and for things that people that, you know, people that don't know all the other details of my story. And so, you know, I was, um, you know, growing up closeted, I always thought, um, you know, I would uh, sort of grow out of it. It was kind of a thing where I just thought maybe it was a phase or maybe it was, um, you know, having not had many experiences with women that maybe I just need to do is, you know, just go through things. And, and you know, you, you kind of grow up and you realize that that's not really true. And, you know, you, you get to realizing, you know, who you are. And as I was, um, you know, going through life, I sort of separated professional and everyday life from personal. And I just figured I didn't need the personal side of my life. Like everything else was going along great. I had a great family, had a great, um, you know, professional life and I was succeeding in that respect. And so didn't feel like I needed that. And then, you know, when I was 31 years old, I remember I was in Phoenix and I had gone through this sort of pattern of, once a year, basically visiting a gay establishment. Like probably I started that when I was like 23, 24 years old. And any experience that came out of that one time a year was usually horrible. 
And it usually sort of reaffirmed the fact that maybe this wasn't me and maybe I didn't, you know, um, have these feelings, yada, yada. And uh, so, you know, fast forward to 2009 and I'm 31 years old at that point. And, you know, I'd kind of known to me, like at 30 was some sort of like a hard deadline, right? Like that was when I'd had to have said something or had to have come out because like I'm 30 years old and I don't have a serious relationship with a woman and like people figure things out, right? And so uh, I was 31 and I was in Phoenix doing a story on Shaq, Shaq being traded from Miami to Phoenix. I was working for the Miami Herald and I decided, you know, after I was done there uh, with whatever I had to do, I'd spend one day and that would be my day, you know, where I would visit the gay establishment. And so I did and, you know, met uh, somebody who I would call a friend at the time. And it was cool sort of having somebody, anybody, just to talk to you about whatever things that I'd held in forever. And so that person, um, a year later, invited me back to Phoenix just to kind of hang out. And I did. And at the time I met, and with that experience, um, I met someone. His name was David Kitchen. And I remember meeting him. Um, I remember I was at a bar and I was watching uh, Lakers Magic. It was the finals of 2009. I think that sounds right, right? And, um, and I was like sort of uh, going to the restroom and I was through the back of the bar and I remember the door sort of opening and like sunlight hitting me in the face because it was Phoenix. So, it was, you know, there's still sun out. And I watched somebody walk through that door. And I was like, wow, that dude's attractive. And then I just remember going back. I remember going to the restroom, coming back out and I sat back down and I had some wings or whatever. And the person I was with. Um, I had mentioned that, hey, I, I saw somebody I thought I was attractive. And it was like, and I realized he was working at the bar and he was behind the bar. And I was like, oh, okay. So that's probably, you know, some straight guy that, you know, just works here or, <laughs> or whatever. And um, no, it turned out like he was, you know, a gay guy. And um, the guy I was with knew who he was. And I was like, wow, that's the first time that's ever happened to me, right? Where I thought I could like someone and that person happens to be in my wheelhouse. And I'm like, all right. And so, um, you know, these are the types of details right here where I, I don't, I haven't shared before, at least not publicly, because people don't do this, right? And so the first, one of the first things I learned about David um, was that he was HIV positive. You know, um, my friend at the time who uh, I was hanging out with said it as much. He said, he's positive, you don't want to deal with that. And at the time, I remember saying to myself, like, you know, I wasn't out to anyone. And so I remember saying to myself, like, I remember watching the movie, uh, watching Rent on Broadway. And at the time, you know, being super closeted or whatever, I remember saying to myself, like, man, you know, HIV and AIDS, like, it's kind of a gay disease, whatever. But at the time, you know, what, as I was growing up, it wasn't a death sentence. Like, it wasn't, you know, the worst thing in the world. Like, okay, like, it's manageable. And so me at the time, like, I'm, 31 years old at the time. And the first thing somebody tells me about somebody that I have any sort of interest in whatsoever is that they're positive. I'm just like, so me, I'm just like, yeah, that's, that doesn't matter. You know, like I can deal with that. I can work around that. You know, it's not a death sentence. It's totally cool. So, you know, um, sort of for the first time ever, you know, sort of worked on these feelings and sort of, you know, sort of reached out to someone and, and, as it turns out, like, we got along great. 
And we, you know, that first, that wasn't the, the initial night that we hung out, David and I, but that first night that we ended up hanging out, it was amazing. It was great. And, you know, it's just like those little, you know, love stories and those anybody's experience. I write those first dates with somebody that you thought was uh, somebody that you ended up sharing a good amount of time with. And, you know, he told me uh, all his details, you know, um, and I remember thinking to myself, like, sort of proudly, right? Like, wow, like, I would totally date this guy. And then so I was somebody I went from, you know, somebody who would thought that I'd never find anybody to just in one per, in one night, like, sort of a weighty situation, realizing, hey, I could totally date somebody. And it just happens to be this person who just happens to be HIV positive, but that's not a big deal for me, right? Like I could totally deal with that. And so like, it was wow, right? And then, you know, that first night, um, I'm sorry, after that first night, the very next morning, I remember sort of waking up and thinking, you know, holy shit, like this is, this is different than other times. Um, and I remember saying, I still had like, Think about that. Like I'm 31 years old. I still had a hard time saying out loud that I was gay. Like, and I said this to David and I told him, you know, quickly my whole story and like the fact that my family didn't know and whatever. And he said, I give you two weeks. And I just like, what do you mean? And he goes, I don't know. Like I give you two weeks. Like I hear what you're saying. And I think within two weeks, you'll have told your family. And I was like, Man, even though I had that whole 30-year-old like deadline in my head, I never thought like I would turn it around that quickly, right? But when he said that, it just sort of woke me up. And you know, that day turned into an extra day and turned into another day. And so I ended up staying in Phoenix for a few days. And it's very like, you know, everything's going great. And then like two days after I got home, I told my sisters. And it was like a huge deal. And so I remember just going through things and just like thinking, okay, like this is what it is. Like I've done everything right so far. Like I've focused on my career, you know, I've, I've waited for the personal side just to just sort of happen. And it did. And I was like, all right, like, it's perfect. This is really good. And so, you know, David and I, and like, never mind that, you know, there's red flags everywhere, right? Uh, you know, there's, um, he's, you know, 10 years, nine and a half years younger than me. Um, at the time, things that I overlooked, like just very dependent on alcohol. That's all right. Like I'll move on and I'll deal with that when it's necessary, right? Like me, somebody who's a very, like I'm a people person and I sort of read people um, at sort of my strength. I was like, you know what? I'll deal with that as it goes along. You know, if it becomes a problem, we'll discuss that and, and we'll go on because this is too good for me. Like this has never happened to me before and I deserve this. And I remember, you know, thinking a lot of things like that. And so, you know, we, we sort of move on and after four months of a long distance relationship, I, um, you know, I asked him to move to Fort Lauderdale and he did. And, you know, he got a job here and, you know, things were going well. And never mind like all the little details about 
how to have a, like a male male relationship like good god like i went from from never even dating somebody never even going on a date to all of a sudden like i live with another human being and we have to deal with things and you know it's like you have the male female norms but there there are real no such things in a gay relationship so um you know we're going about our thing and i'm sort of working through situations and in my head i'm like well is this you know something that is worth me speaking up about or is this something that is worth you know questioning our relationship and i'm just like no you know um i think this is pretty strong and you know we keep going and um I think, so, you know, whatever, we, we, we keep um, having this, you know, go on and, and I'm, I feel like I'm happy, right? And we go, um, and, you know, I propose and in 2014. And again, this is, this is all very short time. This is like within five years of being out. And so literally my first relationship, my only relationship, and I propose, and, you know, the entire time, um, I'm thinking things are great. Like, I, I recognize that, like, um, sort of I am publicly out. Um, things, you know, between me and David, you know, aren't the best all the time. But, you know, I feel like you're just working through a relationship and it is what it is. And I think, and this is sort of what part of the reason why I wanted to tell this story and just like in little, little segments here, um, like, it was obvious to me that he was an alcoholic and, and I don't want to, and I and trust me when I tell you that I'm not sort of violating any, uh, sort of, uh, any privacies or anything like that. But, um, you know, and growing up with a father who was an alcoholic as well. And I didn't really realize that until I was, you know, a full adult. Um, I recognized a lot of the signs and I recognized, um, what I was doing to allow that to happen, to support that, if I will, to enable that at times. And I just sort of kicked the can down the road because I said, you know what, like, that's something I'll deal with if it becomes a huge enough problem for me. And, um, you know, that's not something that is very advisable. Uh, that's not something that I would advise, certainly. And, you know, so I remember at times like thinking, hmm, I wonder if this is what my mom feels like or my mom felt like if she was trapped in a relationship. And, you know, am I the type of person that was way too forgiving and way too giving so that I would concede a lot of things and just be stuck in a relationship similarly to what, you know, my mom had expressed over the years and, and some sort of frustration. And, and, so rather than address what was the actual problem, which is essentially, you know, his issues, um, just like I said, kick the can down the road and just wait it and just let um, make, sort of swept it under the rug until it was a big enough problem to where I could address it. And so I would not advise that. <laughs> and so we got married in 2015. And I remember thinking like it was something that I would never, never, ever, ever have imagined that having happened. Like I went from somebody who never thought I would find someone because, I mean, not to get into too many details and to bore you too much, but like um, that was a very specific type of guy that I liked. And I never thought that in the gay world that that person existed. And so when I found somebody that I did, I was like, you know what, I'm latching on and it is what it is. 
uh, I'll fix the fix whatever issues were in between, uh, you know, between after, you know, we're, we're connected and stuff. And so um, just never thought I'd be able to get married and never wanted that. And yet here I was experiencing it. Like, and for those of you who are married, like the idea of just everybody that you've ever cared about coming into one place to celebrate you, like that's, I never recognized that that's what that's about. You know, the actual event, right? And so it was amazing. And, you know, if I were to just sort of put a pin in my life right there, I would have thought everything was perfect and I would never have any like concerns whatsoever. And so whatever, you know, we keep going. And again, I'm not violating any confidences here, but within the first year of our marriage, um, I realized that, you know, David was not faithful. And to me, like the one thing that I got from my father was that, like, that's the one lesson I learned from him was how important like marriage was. Right. And, <laughs> and while he was had a lot of shortcomings as a father, that was one thing that really stuck with me. And so you're talking about me who never thought I'd even be dating someone to all of a sudden putting, you know, the importance of marriage and saying, hey, like, this means the world to me. This is it. Like, I have, I have moved on from closeted and scared to married. Like, it's done. There's no, <laughs> there's no more than this. And, you know, to have that sort of turned on me, like, within the first year, it's effing crazy, right? And so, um. I mean, too many details, but the second time that happened, it was just like, that's it. It's over. And, <laughs> and, um, you know, David didn't handle that very well. And the day, and that very same day, it went from argument to he's gone to, I just have a weird feeling he's going to attempt to take his own life. And, you know, he might have said or hinted at similar things as we were having a, this discussion or this argument. And, you know, I made it perfectly clear, like, if that's what you're suggesting, I will, you know, call help for, for call for help right now. Like, let's just get that out of the way. If that's what you're suggesting, that's not going to happen. But as he, you know, left our house, uh, I still believed that that was going to happen. And so... um few hours later, um, I don't even think it was that long, but a couple hours later, you know, I called or texted one of his good friends and said, you might want to check in on your friend. I have a feeling he's trying to, you know, going to try to hurt himself. And so, um, you know, I found out that that's exactly what happened and that they, a couple of his friends sort of went to the beach and found him there. Um, what they thought was just drunk because that was a state he was normally in. And really what he had taken was a bunch of um, muscle relaxers with a bunch of shots of alcohol and had just gone over, you know, to the beach slash ocean to just let his life end. But 
you know, fortunately at the time, you know, I had told his friends to go find him and they found him and, but they thought that he was just drunk again. And so meanwhile, the way I found out, I was out of town. I was with my sister and my nieces and nephews, you know, at Disney. And I'd found out while I was out there and sort of had to, you know, hide the whole experience until I got home. And then, um, and then so whatever that happened and I just spent the night, you know, crying, you know, just hurt. And the next morning it's like seven, eight o'clock in the morning. And I'd pretty much spent the whole night, you know, sort of sitting up in my bed and I realized I had to talk to him again. Like I couldn't, I had to speak to him at that moment. And I call, and I'd heard that he had been picked up from the beach or what have you. And so I, you know, I text his friends and they said, um, yeah, you can come by and see him anytime. He's still in the car. And I said, what do you mean? He's still in the car. So I raced over to where they lived and I found where the car was parked and he was in the back seat of the car, basically asphyxiating. Like he was purple and swollen and I called an ambulance immediately and, you know, they came and, and at the moment saved his life. So within 36 hours, I went from my life being completely obliterated to then him trying to take his life, which would have completely shaken me even further to, you know, telling his friend, hey, save your friend's life, which he did. But then me again, saving his life, what, 12 hours later, because if he would have been there as the, as the, you know, doctors told me, if he would have been there for another hour, he would have been dead. And so, I mean, there's moments in your life where you just sort of assess everything and just realize like, what the hell, you know, what is going on? And that just kept happening over and over and over again to me, because at that point, I'm just like, wow. I've not only, you know, had this public coming out, I've had this whole, you know, impactful situation and like I've helped others, but then, you know, in my personal life, it's this effing disaster. And now like I go to the hospital <laughs> and visit, you know, my at the time still husband, knowing that he is, not, I'm supposed to hate him. I'm supposed to hate the shit out of him for what he did to me. And like, here I am, I go to visit him at the bedside and like, he's coming out of sedation, like slowly and he's freaking the F out because like he had been in restraints because he didn't know what happened. He wakes up out of nowhere and all of a sudden he's in the hospital and it took like nine people to hold him down. And so he's in restraints and he has no idea what's happening and he keeps waking up and then like he'll wake up and freak out and then he'll look at me and he'll calm down. And then we'll like try to have a conversation for a couple seconds and then he'd go back out. And then he'd come to again, freak out again, and then see me and calm down. And it would be that same pattern for like five, six, seven hours. And like every time he would come out of sedation and like see me a little bit more happened, like a little bit more of a conversation happened a little bit more. And every time, like, 
you know, the wound was fresh, but here is the guy, the person, the only person that I've ever felt this way about is just sitting here. And all I see is his eyes just looking at me and like finding peace in me. And I'm supposed to fucking hate you for what you did to me. And so what I realized was after just doing that for over and over and over again for hours, I was like, I have to get out of here because it's going to make me not feel as bad. And so I did. I got out of there. And I told, you know, I told everybody involved that, like, I couldn't go back there to see him. As long as he was going to be okay, I couldn't go back there to see him. Now, just to fill you in a little bit, you know, I mentioned he was HIV positive. Like, I forever have been negative, constantly negative, remain negative, just so you know. But um, when he, when we were together, completely healthy, like undetectable healthy, you know. And so having filled in everybody on all the details, I'm like, all right, I can move on, continue to just be hurt by what happened and not feel guilty about his situation. Meanwhile, like, like I was a wreck. Like I remember calling Tony Reale and we were talking and I just remember saying like, I'm a, I'm a fucking cliche. Like I went from being somebody who was like, like having an impact in that field or just in humanity right? To just, if people actually knew, they're like, oh, you know, it's just another gay guy. Um, just uh, a relationship gone wrong and yada, yada. And it's just like, you know, and then I, you know, people had to talk me down off of that and realize that, you know, cliches are cliches because they happen to everybody. Right. And so, you know, I couldn't blame myself and yada, yada. And so it was just a lot. It was a lot. And, you know, meanwhile, like being a public figure, like I have to just go along, like, um, I'm not going to announce I got divorced. Like, how the hell do you do that, right? I'm not going to put pictures up on ATH of us separated just the same way they did with us together during the marriage. So it's like, you know, it just kind of fill people in along the way, as you know. And, you know, it, that's just one of those things where, where you feel like everything, like you said, everything has been going, like I said, everything is going along right. And I feel like um, I've done everything properly. And then the shit hits the fan and you realize that, wow, everything's a question mark. Like, did I do everything right or did I do it wrong? Like, was I focusing on the wrong things? Was my like mental health better than my professional success? Um, you know, what's important? And then I was just like, fuck it. Like 2017, guys, like I have never had that much of an outlet in my life. Like I just did everything. Like I partied. I did all kinds of shit. I just let go. And it was, it was helpful. <laughs> it was very helpful. Um, this is probably TMI too. But hey, I probably have more things in common with Bill Walton than I've ever had before. And that's a bonus. Um, but, <laughs> but um, you know. I think having all of that happen within one relationship, your first relationship, I think sort of brings a lot of, uh, it's all in one, right? It's a little bit of clarity involved and you're just like, wow, even though I was at the time, I think it was 39, whatever, um, realizing that, oh, this is what happens when, you know, this is what 16 year olds felt like when they broke up with somebody that they dated for eight months, because it felt like the world to them. And it was like, oh, shit, like you recover from these things. And so, you know, I kind of moved on and had recovered and just was like, 
it, it filled me, you know, it filled a lot of those experiences that I hadn't had and to the extreme. And I wouldn't wish that upon anybody, but I felt like, okay, like that was good for me to experience as crazy as that sounds. And so, um, it was three Tuesdays ago that I got a text. Like, so after, <laughs> after, um, after David's suicide attempt, uh, like, you know, had, I wouldn't call it an ugly divorce. It was, it, he made it last longer than it should have, but it wasn't long. We were only married for 15 months. Those things are pretty easy, right? Cut and dry. And so, um, you know, I, I remember talking to him afterward and it was just really hard to separate like my own human emotions and, and, and feeling sorry for him when things like he would tell me a story that he was like, what about the time when you came to visit me with your sisters and you were all just kind of like mocking me? And I'm like, David, that never happened. Like that was while you were under sedation, that never happened. And so like all that stuff was like heart wrenching for me, but I still had to do what I had to do and separate myself because like, that's, you know, that's a call for help. It's also just a manipulation tactic. Like if you're trying to, you know, to do that. And so uh, I had to separate myself. And fortunately at the time, like I had, and you guys, a lot, I talk about them all the time, Anthony, like fortunately at the time, it was just, I had him to lean on as um, somebody completely out of the blue who I'd known from flag football, but completely out of blue and recognize that he was a great emotional support. And so I, I could definitely sort of separate from David. And, you know, I feel like I'd moved on, I'd become a more complete person. And so Three Tuesdays ago, I got a text uh, from a friend of ours, meaning mine and David, and we were closer friends and David and I were together, but, um, and I called her and she tells me that David is in the hospital um, and that he's very close to being taken to hospice care and that it was very likely he was going to pass away within a matter of weeks. Now that's some shit right there <laughs> because you feel like you got past it. Like you feel like, you know, it was just one crazy bump in the road, but then <laughs> it's, it's totally different when you consider that his life is leaving him. And so it was just so much to deal with at the time. And, and, you know, having filling in the gaps, like, and this is really heavy to think about, like, when I met him, he was literally a 22 year old uh, gay man with HIV, who was highly dependent on alcohol, to the point where he had like, a didn't even have a driver's license, because he had had a, um, a DWI and never completed the process of, you know, recovering it and everything else to, you know, all of a sudden, like, I guess I gave him like meaning in his life um, to where like he cared for himself and he took care of himself and he was completely healthy. And then like, you know, I sort of gave him some meaning in his life and, and like that was an eight to nine year gap there, right? So you would think that would like, you would think that would like infiltrate him. Like you would, you think that he would feel that, right? But I don't think he ever felt 
the ability to feel like he deserved uh, love. Like, I mean, to give you further background, like when he was young, 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 like he came out to his family when he was like 11 and that was not cool with them. And like, um, you know, uh, his mom and dad had split. His dad literally left him in a house that was to be foreclosed and abandoned him when he was 16 years old. And so when he was, you know, the last two years of high school or last year of high school, he had to fend for himself and live with friends and stuff like that. And you know, that's where the alcohol dependency came in at a young age because he just felt abandoned. And so he went from that to me and I was given everything I had to make sure that this dude was happy, everything I had. And so from the time that we split in December of 2016, it's less than three and a half years. And he completely deteriorated to the point where he's on his deathbed. And how do I, like, I'm supposed to fucking deal with that. Like, I'm supposed to deal with, I was giving this guy, I was propping him up, like giving him the best life, the best life he's ever experienced. Like nine years uh, and, you know, to today, he's 33 years old. So that's, that's a third of your life. And I am providing the best of it for you to the point where, after we split up, like you can't even survive because that's, that's just what happened. Like basically since the time we split up, he'd stopped taking his meds. He didn't really give a shit. And he just sort of, again, just pushed things on to the side. And from what I understand, he might've had like another suicide attempt in there, but not serious enough where it would call it that. So it was more of a cry for help. And so like, I have to, like all of a sudden having not spoken to him probably in about two years and just faced with that. <laughs> I didn't know, like, I didn't know who, how to deal with that. You know, I've got Anthony over here who I'm in love with and I've got like, I'm shedding tears over somebody else that in my past that hurt me like hell. And, and yet I feel responsible for grieving properly because nobody knew him like I did. Nobody loved him like I did, not even his own family did. And so he deserves that from someone. And so I'm like, you know, dealing with all that. And a lot of things go through my head, right? Like, not in terms of guilt, because I, I think I long ago sort of gave up, like he would, David would say to me constantly, like, if you ever left me, I'd just be naked in a ditch somewhere. Ha ha ha. But I knew that was something that was actually true. Like, I knew that that was not just something that he would say. And, and frankly, I would think it before he would even say it. And so I, I, I dropped the whole guilt thing a long time ago. But it was just the idea that, man, that that's just pot, that that was like what was my life like i attached myself to somebody who i don't know if it was like inevitable right like i don't know if this would have happened had i not ever met him but it just again it's all just it's all just really weighty and it just sort of makes you question everything right and then <laughs> and so i have to see him like, I know he's dying. 
but of course I have to see him. Like we already had those conversations, like after we'd split up um, about, you know, did I know that he loved me? And I just didn't really give him the satisfaction of saying yes. Right. Because it's just like, I didn't really seem like loving actions. And so, but you know, he had apologized for his part in it and I'd apologized for, I mean, I don't know, whatever the hell I had to apologize for. And so we'd already gone through that, but this was different. Like he's 33 years old. And all I ever wanted for him is to move on and just be happy and just figure himself out. But now he's like on his deathbed and like the reason, and I know this isn't like, I'm not, again, I'm not putting it on myself, but the reason he's there is because we broke up. Because if that didn't happen, he would still be on his meds. He'd still be a perfectly happy human being. And now three years later, he's just, he's just, he's dying. And all the, all the pain and all the hurt, that's gone out the window. Of course, when you like, when you even think about it, much less see him, right? And so I had to go see him and I saw him twice. And, you know, the first time he had just been, he had just been given some, you know, uh, was it morphine? And so he wasn't all there, but you know, he, he was there enough to have a conversation. And then the second time, like I was, I'd known that he was going to be going to hospice. And now with COVID, like if you're in hospice, they don't let you visit anybody unless it's like last day or two, unless it's, uh, you know, the death is pending. And, um, and so I treated it like it would be the last time I would talk to him. And, you know, we had an amazing conversation for an hour. And like, it was the second time I'd been at the hospital bed, you know, at his side and like, and looking in his eyes and like this time, like, I remember the last time I'd been, you know, during a suicide attempt, like, I remember just looking and seeing his eyes and being like, sort of seeing through him and like I was like man he just had some really emotional eyes like you could see everything in them and that's what made me have to leave that time was like if I keep looking in your eyes like I'm not going to feel bad I'm not going to feel you know I'm not going to feel angry I'm going to feel terrible for you and then I compared it to this time and it was like it's just like yellow and it's like it's the worst you know and like i think being able to like have that conversation with someone before they go like i never thought i'd be able to like even have to deal with that much just have to do it and like it couldn't have been much better in terms of saying goodbye to somebody but damn it like the whole time i'm sitting there i'm like you're 33 years old like why did you do this to yourself like you could have, it couldn't have been better. Like it wasn't, I wasn't the only person who cared about you. There are other people that care about you. And it's just, it's just so much deal with at the time. And like, you know, you try to say goodbye and it's just like, it doesn't feel real. It feels like a movie. You know, but I did. And then two days later, I guess a day later, excuse me, he had been moved over to hospice care. I wasn't allowed in and so I talked to him on the phone and he made it sound like they were treating him like kings in there 
like a king in there and it was just great and you know he had he wasn't all there necessarily like there was times where he thought he was back in phoenix and like i was i was talking about things he wanted to do before he passed he was really into politics and you know with the election coming up he was a lot he wanted to do <laughs> So then, I mean, not to get into the silly details, but um, I wasn't allowed to get any more updates on him, and, but things happened pretty quickly. And, and on Monday, the 10th, passed away. And the news didn't really hit me as hard. When, when it happened because um because i kind of already went through the stages you know um and i had a ton of support like if i read you the text from just from like tony reale and dan levitard you guys would would recognize why they're as awesome human beings as they are but it's just crazy to think about you know like people think that um you know, people only hear like the, 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 the cursory details of, of people's lives and, and don't realize that everybody goes through some crazy shit, you know, and like, it's all relatable. And if we just kind of like talk about these things and just, you know, get it out there, it, it won't be as like, as much to deal with on an individual level. But I think the main thing that I, I wanted to, to get across, and this is something that I even talked, we were talking at brunch today with uh, my partner, Anthony and our our friends, Tony and Vanessa was like the idea of just like, you know, addiction. And if you know somebody that is suffering from it, like, I know it's, it's not an easy answer. It's no, it's not easy period to, to force that person to get help or to force the issue. But like somebody needs to, like, it's better than the alternative, which is just letting it sit and just letting, um, letting things get worse and you know whether or not anything would have been differently whether he would still be alive or not um i really wish i would have done something and said something to force him to get help um he tried from what i understand after we'd split up and i think maybe it only you know lasted three or four weeks and i remember him telling me at some point via text i think it was about two years ago that you know that he was going to get help because you know alcohol made him hurt people he loved and i think um it's just something i just want people to to you know to know that it's like it's not worth waiting for it's not worth like it's not going to be better down the road like um waiting and, and it's not gonna it's not always going to be the answer like it's not like it's going to solve your problems if you just address it but it's the only way to even try to address it um and I guess when it comes to like, the other thing that I recognize is just when it comes to grieving and stuff like, um, A, it's like, there's definitely a process there. Like all those stages and stuff, it's real. And it's really weird to, to have that happen all of a sudden um, and not really expect it. But, you know, I really appreciate it, Like all the support that I have and not everybody has that type of support. And so it's something that I definitely like want to encourage is just, 
if you're ever going through something, just talk about it, man. Like just find somebody to lean on because it's always so much better than going through shit, you know, on your own. And like you guys, I mean, just this community around the Levitard show and everything else is, has helped me just be the person that I am, but also just recognize that like, it's better to just be an open book and just, you know, just let things out there and, um, and just have everybody sort of pick whatever they can from it that can help them. Like I remember, um, I was sort of working on a project that's sort of on hold. Um, and I was talking to Billy Bean, um, not Oakland A's Billy Bean, but gay baseball player, Billy Bean, if you guys remember him. And he was telling me a story and it was in his book. And I remember hearing about it, but it's not the same as when you actually hear it from the person. So I remember him telling me a story about, it was in 1994 or 95. It was right after the, the strike shortened season, I believe. And he was severely closeted, right? <laughs> as if that's a condition. Um, he was severely closeted and he was in a relationship, uh, but his partner had passed away. But nobody knew it because both of them were deep in the closet. So he's in a hospital. He watches his partner pass away. And all he can do is walk outside of that hospital and just cry. And he couldn't tell anybody. He told the, the guy's sister, but the guy, it was all brand new news to her because he didn't know, she didn't even know that they were in a relationship. And then literally the next day, San Diego Padres opening day, got to get, you're in the lineup. Like the next day, he can't even deal with that. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that is the most dramatic shit I've ever heard in my life. I never would wish that upon anybody. And then this happens to me and I'm just like, man, like, you know, it's just, it's just crazy. It's just crazy to think about. And um, so, yeah, it's just, I remember feeling at the time so bad for Billy Bean that he couldn't talk to anybody about that. And that's the worst part. That's the part that I wouldn't wish upon anybody. And that's why, like, I talked to Steak before, like, I think about 10 days ago, it was before David had passed. And I sort of prepared him for this. And I was like, I just need to, like, go. I just need to go. And I need you guys to listen to me. And um, because most of you have already known, you know, some details about me. And so it was just an easy way to do this. And so um, I guess thanks you know, you all for listening and like, um, and anything you guys want to talk about from here, like, what do you got? <laughs> well, I'm here. Uh, Izzy, um, I, I can't, I, in moments like this, after hearing a story like that, words just kind of feel hollow, you know, like I don't know if there is a right thing to respond with that. Um, other than thank you for being so open. Uh, with that story um, and, and telling us, telling us about what happened. Uh, uh, I'm actually steak, I believe has something. I'm going to throw it to him. Go ahead, steak. Um, uh, thank you for sharing that with us. No for you. I wish I could hug you right now. Um, that being said, um, if you had to replace your fingers with condiments, what would you choose? Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Can, I'm seriously crying. Can you take us to a happy moment? How did you propose? Oh, that's a good story. Um, so, oh God, this is so gay. You guys remember Glee, right? <laughs> so 
Do you remember the episode where they did, I forgot who got married, but they did Bruno Mars marry, marry you, right? And so they ended up doing it like a, a, I think it was duet style. And um, so it was 2014 and I was like, you know what? I'm going to do that. And so we did a karaoke flash mob uh, where... (laughs) It was me and our really good friend, Marcy. And you'll know Marcy. You don't know you know Marcy, but you remember all my Halloween costumes uh, for Around the Horn. Marcy is a dope makeup artist. And so she was responsible for so much of my makeup through those like seven straight years. I think six of those seven years. So she's a super talented singer. She sounds just like Dolly Parton. And um, so I was like, Marcy, let's do this. You and I, we're going to do this song. And so um, had all our friends sort of create like this coordinated thing where it was like, and as the song goes along, you know, you realize it's a flash mob. And, and there's this one part where, there's this one part where, um, that's how you said this was happy steak. There's this one part where uh, the, guy, <laughs> the guy says, you know, something about give me a ring. And I had my buddy Ray toss me the ring and I proposed to him there. And it was, um, it was a bar called New Moon, which is a lesbian bar at the time. It was so weird. Um, but <laughs> we got, so I proposed during a flash mob karaoke session at a lesbian bar in 2014 in Wilton Manors. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. That's dope, man. Yeah, um, you, Crispy, I'm sorry. No, no, you're good, State. You're good. Um, I, just something that you said uh, about when you, when you first got together with David about how he gave you two weeks before he told your family, before yeah. you told your family. Um, I have to imagine in hindsight, what a gift that was to propel you point. into the next chapter of your life. The next, like to finally be able to kind of embrace who you are, who you always had the inkling, the suspicion that you were. hundred percent. Um, right. And thank you for bringing that up because there's a lot of things, you know, in telling that story that I forget to say, but that is, you know, among the greatest gifts that anybody could, could be given. And that's something that I've, um, I've, I can't thank anybody else for. David gave me that. He gave me the opportunity to love myself, which I never did before. And that was something like Levitard pointed that out to me, among other things. And that sort of made me, you know, thankful and that obviously that he was in my life but you know just thinking about what he did for me and then what i have done in reaction to that for other people just from you know hearing my story or whatever and i think and i told him that i told him that like i told him you know i wish you would have known this before but you've had a huge impact on other people's lives and like everything that like people have come to me and said you know i can't you know i can't thank you enough like half those people bring him up and so while he didn't value his life whatsoever, like he had so much meaning, but he didn't even know it. And so, yeah, that's something that I, you know, it's something that nobody else can say they did for me, which was give me that opportunity to love myself. And that was, um, I told him that, and I was so thankful that I could tell him that because that was absolutely huge. Absolutely. Uh, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, once again, just thank you for sharing that story with us. Um, but I just well, kind of wanted to give an opportunity to tell some more, any other happy stories that you had with David. Um, and also just wondering how uh, 
how like, just how much if this is too personal you don't have to answer but how is anthony handling um you kind of obviously you're you're allowed to grieve but it's it's kind of a touchy subject with, with an ex just kind of how that's going no that's a great question i'm you know um in terms of the good times with david like there's just a ton of them and you can you know i think uh it's not like i deleted any instagram stuff but um you know any trip that we took anything it was all you know it was amazing like it was all um all the good all the highlights were great highlights you know the day literally the day here's probably the the highlightest moment of my life frankly was um outside of the wedding like the wedding man like if you think uh, and steve hang on to the second half of that question because i'm probably going to forget it but um if you think that like people are crazy for spending a shit ton of money on weddings like i totally get that now i absolutely get that like i spent a good amount of money on that damn wedding and it was a blast and everybody loved it the food was amazing and we had wedding crashers for crying out loud that's how you know it was good right um but that was a great moment but i would say like in 2015 yeah it was 2015 um the Marriage Equality Act, uh, the Supreme Court passed that on my birthday in 2015 wow. while I was at a flag football, a gay flag football tournament, okay? <laughs> and I remember I had gotten up earlier before, uh, before David did because we had an early game and I had gotten the news while I was in transit. And so when he showed up, I remember seeing him from like across the field and I ran over there like, <laughs> and I just, I can't believe I didn't think about this for a while. I ran over there and I just gave him a giant hug. And I was just, it felt like it was supposed to happen, right? It was supposed, perfect. It was all my birthday and yada, yada, yada. And I'd already engaged. We were getting married, you know, um, soon after that. And so, yeah, it was, it was crazy. Um, but the second part of that was what, Steve? Well, first, what, when's your birthday? Uh, June 26th. So you, so you, I, we've talked before, you know, my brother-in-law is, uh, your brother-in-law, Jeff D'Addario. Yes. down in Fort, so him and his twin brother they're both gay also their birthday oh wow so that. it was a very exciting day over here as well wow. so that's awesome <laughs> uh but the second part was just um how anthony's handling um oh, kind of everything going on a lot of people asking that and like um anthony and i have a feeling you guys are going to get to know him eventually but um anthony is um somebody who sort of studies himself a lot like he sort of uh wants to 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 see how you know, how he would react in a certain situation. And like, he's had a, a difficult upbringing, which we'll get into one other day. But um, so his mentality is like, a lot, he's looking at me feeling like these extreme emotions and wondering if he would ever feel that way. Like that's, and, and I get that because I remember being, you know, in my early twenties thinking, hey, well, I'd cry if I was at my, you know, somebody's funeral or something like, and just, you know, not really recognizing, um, you know, when it's sort of, when you sort of tap into those things. Um, but people keep asking him that. And he's just like, I've been fine. Like, I'm good. I get the awkwardness of it, but I'm good. I just worry about, you know, Izzy. And so he seems to think that people are asking him that just to find a way to ask about me. And it's just like, no, like people like, it's a weird situation, but he's been amazing. And um, he just, uh, yeah, he's, he's there for me. And like, he gives me the support that I need. And like, he gives me the perspective that I need. And like, I had that from him, you know, as soon as we, as soon as David and I split up. And so um, I always knew it was going to be there. And, but yeah, he's just been great. Appreciate that, man. You got the, the picture that th you mean, Anthony at Moss. It was, hey, it was a great man. night. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again for your time, man. Really appreciate no it. Words. Izzy is as someone who performs uh, wedding ceremonies. I see 
I, I, I'm an officiant and I, I get to walk these people through what is quite often the happiest moment in their life. And like you, you mentioned earlier, if, if you haven't been married before, it's hard to understand like the celebration that that is. Um, and it's an embarrassment of riches, you know, like all these people want to come and celebrate this new part of your life. And it's, uh, it's so much heavier, particularly, as you said, you were raised by a father who may have had his own shortcomings, but the emphasis on marriage and that strong bond is uh, if you put a lot of stock into it, it is uh, it's it's it feels very different from one day to the next after you've taken those vows. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I just I felt a lot when you touched on that. Um, uh, I'm going to throw it out to Morgan uh, now in Australia. Go ahead, Morgan. Hey, Izzy. Um, I just want to say thank you for like being on our platform and just letting us listen to you. Um, I'm somebody who's dealt with addiction before um, and gotten through that and somebody who's had people in my life try to take their life due to addiction and, and I just really appreciate having people talk about it and normalise it um, and as emotional as it does make me like it, just, it really helps to hear other people's story and I just wanted to thank you so much. Yeah, of course and like that's something that and, and please uh, <laughs> I love you Morgan. Um, I think um, you know, going back throughout our relationship, like it wasn't just me who recognized it, right? Our friends recognized it, you know, um, there were people and they would recognize it in a different way. They would, they would say to themselves and they told me afterward, they were just like, you know, why is Izzy with this guy? And I'm just like, you guys, if you would have just told me and just said, Hey, like, we think that David needs some help or something like that, then I would have forced the issue. But like I said earlier, like I knew it, I knew it. Um, and again, I'm not sort of placing everything on that but obviously if he didn't have that addiction um then things could have turned out differently you know you know whether or not that is where his feelings of of um of his inability to feel love right or to accept it or self-worth whether that came from before the alcohol or the alcohol sort of created it in him i don't know but i just know it would have been a better situation if he would have been able to address it earlier, like we're talking about from the age of 22, you know, that you're still formative. Like those are still important years. And so like, you know, where I was, you know, a decade older and had gone through so much more and was currently sort of finishing off my life experience with the personal stuff. Like he had still been, he had still so much more to go through. And I think in terms of um, timing wise, that probably wasn't the best for him to have somebody like me, um, in his life, because I was just kind of pulling him along and letting him do what whatever felt comfortable for him. And so um, I would not recommend that. Like, I would definitely like not just, you know, not just hide behind the good times or not just wait for those moments or like, it's not going to get better. And so, um, and again, it's not, it's not always going to end well. It's not like there are people who have given me advice on that very subject. Uh, as I've been going through this, it's like, um, not to say this was inevitable, but just to say that it is entirely out of your control, even if you do find or help that person seek help. It's out of your control. And it could, it could get worse. It could have that person turn on you. You never really know. But the alternative is almost never the answer. 
you know, because the chances of that person sort of figuring out for him or herself is probably not very high. I appreciate that, but I just, I, I heard you say it and I don't like, I, I know that every situation is different, but you, you can't help somebody who doesn't want to be helped. Um, but I'm, I'm, I just, I hope that you understand that none of that is on you and that you did everything that you could. And I think it's really big of you to be there for him. Um, the end. And I appreciate I'm really sorry for your loss. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. All right. Uh, Barrett, go ahead. So death is something that is been prevalent in my life for from a very <clears throat> young age. It's actually why I wanted to go back to school. It's what I'm going to study on a cultural level. And the emotions that you're feeling are just so natural. And the guilt that you have knowing that his life went, <clears throat> excuse me, that his life went really downhill. That is such a natural response to have, but you shouldn't harbor those feelings. Something that was said at my grandma's funeral was that um, a person dies twice and it's when they die and it's when some, it's when their name is spoken about for the last time. And, you know, this guy really impacted your life. And you said that he, um, was into politics, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you could wrestle with this guilt and these emotions and uh, try and turn them into, you know, maybe not as much resentment, you know, it's, you want to, you want to not forgive him for how he treated you. But the fact is, is he was a huge part of your life. Yeah. And that, and thank, and that means a lot. Like, I think, you know, it's funny because like one of the things, like I said earlier, one of the things that he was talking about um, that he wanted to do before, you know, he actually went was, you know, sort of sit in on on a political situation or on like during Election Day, sit in, you know, there and, and sort of celebrate. And at the time, uh, you know, it was the mayor of Wilton Manors. I think he wanted to have somebody he wanted to endorse. And it's just like in terms of his spirit, in terms of everything that he wanted to do, like this is the guy who like was 16 years old and was part of a campaign, a Senate campaign. I think her name was Marcy, man, Marcy Burner, I believe her name was in Seattle or something like he was part of a political campaign at such a young age. And it was something that really drove him. And he had such good intentions, you know, and if, if you know, things had been completely different, um, then he probably would have been in politics, a political figure and sort of really doing really good things. And I think, um, you know, for those who, uh, you know, Barrett, that, that really, it's, it, it's, it's a great point and it's something that I definitely want to sort of carry on is just everything that I stand for politically and everything that I want um, are the same things that David would want. And frankly, he was the one that brought a lot of these things to my attention and that I deserve to be able to speak about these things publicly. And so that's another thing that I will definitely sort of carry on. And, um, you know, and, and I think uh, it was Lebetard who mentioned the phrase, like, you should lead with love and not guilt. And that's something that I um, <laughs> definitely that's, that's carry That's exactly on. what I'm getting at is um, we all have shortcomings, but you should celebrate and love his life for what you were able to share with him. Thank you, my man. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, I believe Coach Debro has something. Go ahead, Coach. 
Hey, Izzy. Hello. Uh, I'm totally on the train of like normalizing this talk. Because, oh, damn it, I don't, I hate being uh, not able to talk. Um, it hit hard. I have a friend, she's like one of the most badass, like whole loving people I've ever known in my life. Um, and she's married to somebody who had a similar like horrible upbringing and it just, you know, excuses, excuses, excuses leading into just like spiraling out. And it's just, she's gotten to the point so many times over the last few years where it's like, I'm not healthy. I can't raise my kids in a healthy environment. But then she has this horrific guilt because he will just take off. And she's like, I don't know if he's dead. I don't know where he is. And of course she just like, doesn't want to be the one to pull the pin. And how, how can you even give advice to somebody where it's like somebody you've loved for almost 20 years could go off and lose it, but you need to take care of yourself and your kids. And this is, this is the part where, and I'm sorry, that's happening to her. And this is the part where I wish I had better advice because in an odd way, like David made it easy for me. He made it, it was cut and dry for me. Like I told you, marriage was huge for me. Somebody who never even thought he would be able to go on a date all of a sudden is married and it means the world to me. And so once that institution was just, you know, uh, he gave no thought to it and just, I, I'm out. And so it made it easy. It was, it was a sort of hate and sort of you cut it off. And so what I think, um, the only thing I could say is that like, you're right, like at some point that pulling of the cord has to happen or you know, the thread of that has to be there to see if that's something that can help this person improve because it, it doesn't help anybody, anybody to stay in that situation over and over again. And that fear of like, what's going to happen to me is way stronger than what's going to happen to the other person. My thought was always what's going to happen to David if I leave him. It was never me. So to say, hey, what's going to happen to me if I turn this thing? I wish I knew, but I know it's better than being in that situation. Yeah, it's like something where it's like you just, there's no way to say it. But then, like, I want my friend to take care of herself. And that's where I just feel like, I mean, you need a community. Like, you need people around you. Like, if you think, everybody thinks, you know, family's everything and family's important. But if your singular family situation is miserable and it's driving you crazy, well, then you need a secondary family. You need somebody else to talk to. And, and you know, fortunately, I have a, a few avenues to go to. But if other people don't, like, it can be pretty tragic. That's so true. So thank you because I'm telling her to listen to this. So thank you for getting us one more download. Um, <laughs> thank you, Izzy. No problem, guys. Yeah, my uh, my father is a Vietnam veteran and has been an alcoholic his entire life. I grew up in a house with a lot of alcohol in it, and my mother finally uh, got out of that situation. And it's been, you know, the rest of my life, I'll be dealing with it. I'll be dealing with the, I feel like a lot of people think trauma is something that happens like instantaneously in an impactful, in a moment, you know, but it is exactly, it is, it is day in and day out living with someone who's unpredictable, who you don't know what you're going to come home to, particularly when it's a father figure is it's, it. It's a lifetime of trauma that you then have to sort out and deal with uh, for the rest of your life. Um, It's it's a lot. All right, I'm going to throw it to Jeff now. Go ahead, Jeff. 
Uh, hey, appreciate everything, man. Um, so my initial uh, intent was to bring a little levity to the situation by making a joke that um, steak sauce became appreciably more attractive because his wife was sitting in the seat for a while. But I then saw that, yeah. Back. So that all went to shit. Um, and man, you got me crying like a motherfucker over here. I actually didn't have a question. I just wanted to say thank you, dude. I love you. No I love you, brother. That, it, I appreciate so much your sharing everything. Without going too deep in anything, I guess I don't have the ball that Crispy does. Um, I, uh, you know, we've all experienced our um, our issues in these along these lines, myself included. So I, I just, I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. No problem, man. Seriously. Like, and it's funny because I remember saying to myself, I was like, you know, you go with all these thoughts. And I remember at the time thinking, why am I thinking about this? Like, this is not, this is like so secondary. But I was like, do I want to just like have Levitard like do a, a South Beach sessions where I just kind of like unload? And then I'm just like, nah, Dan's going to ask too many damn questions. I'm just going to do it with you guys. <laughs> and then we'll let the questions happen after. <laughs> Thanks, brother. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Izzy, you have a uh, lifetime free pass of just shooting us a DM and coming on and saying whatever you want to, my man. Like you are, you're one of uh, obviously you're you're officially part of that universe, but uh, you're an honorary Lower Ranger as well. So I know you're thrilled to hear that. Of course, um, <laughs> for sure. All right, I'm going to throw it to Drake. Go ahead, Drake. Hey, Izzy, man, appreciate it again. Um, so I don't, I don't have a question. Um, just kind of wanted to share my uh, experience with you. Um, you, you single-handedly changed the way I view um, kind of the gay community. Um, I'm, I'm from South Carolina, so that probably tells you all you need to know on, on kind of the environment I grew up in. Um, so I want to say thank you um, for all that you do, um, and also now you've, you've given me another insight in, into addiction. We've all kind of been there. Um, but one thing that I want to share with you, um, that hopefully will, will, uh, put a smile on your face. So if you can see here, this is my daughter, Isabella, oh. who I call Izzy. And, um, <laughs> so, so your, your impact not only affects me, but also her life. And I mean, Anyone who who's a dad um, can obviously relate, and and you, I know you treat your niece and nephew that way. Um, so I just wanted to share that with you. Um, That's so. awesome, man! Thank you so much. And um, you know, this is why, like, you know, hearing these things, you know, after I came out in 2015, you hear people talk about like, oh, you've you've made such an impact. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I haven't done anything. I just said what's happening in my life. And I realized that that's exactly what people need to hear. And, um, you know, I remember when I first uh, started uh, speaking of, uh, you know, going back to David, like when we first started dating in 2009, like I lived in Fort Lauderdale and the gay area here was Wilton Manors, right? That's the gayborhood. And that's where I lived from 2010 until literally just last week. And so um, I remember going out, I was like, look, I'm just going to go out and hang out, create a couple of friends, right? And that way, when David moves over, I'll have like a little group to hang out with. And, you know, at the time, uh, <laughs> at the time, I, 
you know, I had my own like self-hatred issues, right? Like if you're not proud to be gay, there's, there's things that you're going to dislike about the gay community. Right. And so like, I, I wasn't a fan of like, to be honest, I wasn't a fan of like feminine gay men. I was just like, you make us look bad and all that stupid shit. Right. But really it's just like, no, like I was so like, once I just realized I just got to know um, so many people in that situation, you just realize that, man, like, that's so fucking stupid. It is so stupid. And like, and even if most of those guys, if they weren't, you know, that flamboyant or feminine before, like it wasn't built in them, maybe just having all that repression and all that bullshit held back, they're just like, fuck this. And they just become whatever the hell they want to do because everything else was held back. So, you know, uh, so aggressively early on in their life. And so it's just like, um, you know, I've had my own issues with like self-hatred and like, you know, you know, in, within the gay community, that is super prevalent. And so if, if there's like enough of conversation about that, like, like Drake, like you were just saying, like, um, then it won't take like having to hear some story like me to like mine to, to make that more comfortable or, or, or to open your eyes. And like, Man, if I like hearing that honestly, like if I wasn't if I wasn't already crying throughout this interview, like I would fucking burst into tears right now because that is exactly what I want. That's all that I want. And like that's why this the project that I'm working on, which is hope installed, but hopefully is gonna get, you know, on the move pretty quickly. Like hopefully that like opens a lot of people's eyes and just becomes just more human um element to this. And like that's one of the things I was thinking of as like a secondary benefit, if you will, to this was just again, if you just hear the story, oh, it's a story about two men, it's not that crazy. It normalizes it, right? And so that was the secondary benefit to that. So thank you so much for saying that. It really means a lot. Yeah, I uh, I imagine with a lot of marginalized communities there the need, the desire to want to uh fit into spaces that kind of push Good God, that's all I ever want in life is to fucking be one of the guys. Like, I just want to fit into a group. That's it. (laughs) That's it. Exactly. Exactly. So that that creates, that fosters a, uh, basically a self-punishment of the qualities that don't fit within those larger groups that you want to be a part of. And it creates so much self-resentment. It's something, I've, I've never had to deal with that. You know, I'm a straight white male in America. Like I hit the, 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 the lottery when it comes to not having to curtail who I am to fit in any kind of, any kind of group that I want to be a part of. Um, having said that, uh, I just heard gayberhood for the first time. I have not heard that term before. That was not that was not on my uh my gaydar at all. So thank you for the that term Gaber to uh Gaberhood. All right. I'm gonna throw it to a Mike Ryan fan account. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you, Izzy, for being so open with us and for you know everyone. And it it definitely just wanted to let you know. I mean, it slowly is making a change. I know it's made a change in the way that I'm parenting my soon-to-be two-year-old. Uh, you know, I'm kind of ashamed to admit I, I mean Dan kind of admits it himself you you grow up in a macho Hispanic mm-hmm. household you know and the way my father spoke about things the way, when I was growing up you know I'm ashamed to admit it and that's not happening in my house you know in 2020 it's my wife buys books that are uh, I think it's like I think it's supposed to be kind of open your mind to to 
boys wearing pink and that type of stuff. And, you know, we also have a, a three-year-old daughter and if he wants to put on her boots, so be it, you know, put them on and, you know, I'm not going to make a fit. Whereas in other households, my, my parents or, you know, there's that, that would have been an issue, you know, so it's uh, slowly happening as far as change goes. Well, that's awesome to hear. Thanks a lot. And this is where like, you know, like people like Dwayne Wade, you know, I think in the heavens for that guy, because like just being as, as cool as he is and as open as he is and just allowing, you know, his daughter to really, you know, sort of be out there. And when I first heard, um, like I was, I was so happy, um, that she's part of that family because not everybody gets to gets to experience that right and just be who you are from such a young age and so like i, I forgot to mention this part earlier like um you know my dad had a stroke in 2005 like a pretty severe stroke to where um his communication wasn't great um you know any english that he had you know spoken was you know out the window and so um my spanish isn't great and so um in 2005 i was still closeted to everybody um, when I came out to my family and friends, it wasn't to my dad because my dad, um, you know, I'm sure maybe like yours probably said some things, you know, uh, there's some words growing up that, you know, I heard constantly, um, kind of sounds like shrimp in Spanish, but not exactly if you know what I'm saying. And so, uh, <laughs> and so I would, um, you know, I knew that he was a homophobe. Like, in fact, he was like, he threw out racist shit all the time when we were growing up. Right. And so I knew all that. And so I, but, you know, since he had the stroke in 05, um, you sort of see him watch life go by without him having any control or literally any say in it, right? That was one of my things. My dad was always very, you know, vocal. He would always have a point, right? And he, and he was that annoying guy at a Domino's game. It wouldn't shut the fuck up. And so, um, <laughs> and so I watched him watch sort of life go by without him being able to have any say in it. And you realize that he's just sort of let things sink in. And I don't know that to be true. I'm just guessing based on his reactions, but I believe that to be true. And this is not my proudest moment, but I was cowardly as shit when it came to coming out to my dad. I didn't actually do it to him face to face. Okay. Me don't, he couldn't even say anything if he wanted to in response. And yet I was still too cowardly to tell him to his face. I had my mom and my sister tell him literally two days before I got married. That is so ridiculous. He was, we had his bags packed. He was coming to Key West. He had no idea why until a few days before. And then I had my sister and mom tell him and his response was essentially, well, that's life. And I was like, wow such a different response than what if I would have told him, you know, in 2004, before all his faculties had left him. Um, and so that was, again, not my proudest moment whatsoever. But um, watching him, like I said, since then, and just like, he can't say it. But like, it's, we have a better connection now than ever, which is sad, because he literally can't say it. Like, my dad is shriveling away. And I've never been more happy to see him. It's so weird. Hmm. <laughs> I didn't actually, I never actually thought about that out loud before. <laughs> Let's see. Up next, we have got uh, Asom. Asom, go ahead. Hey, Izzy, man. What's up? Um, 
You know what, I'm gonna shut off the video. I don't know why, it might help. I just wanna thank you for, uh, I just wanna thank you for coming out with us. Um, You know what, Will? You can pass me. Go ahead, man. No, no, no. Take your time. What's going on? You know, this is edited. We can take out all the data. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> About 15 years ago, I moved into my apartment in Chicago, a couple blocks from Wrigley Field. It's in the Lakeview area. It's known as a uh, Boys Town. That's what people call it. Quite familiar with it. When I moved in, it's still to this day, I get a lot of slack for keeping it. But I not only love it because it's close to Wrigley Field, I love that, that area, man. I love everyone there, all the people. And the worst thing about this um, pandemic, the biggest parade in Chicago is the um, gay pride parade. Everyone shows up. Mm -hmm. And it's just a shame that we can't have it this year. Again, man, I just want to thank you for, uh, you know, I just knew you from watching you on Around the Horn and HQ and I've known your story. Uh, I've listened to you going back to, um, you know, Izzy and Izzy in Spain, you know, the radio show. Mm -hmm. So I just want to thank you, man, for coming out with us. You got it, man. And like, um, it's crazy because I remember first recognizing your tweets and how you were one of the regulars that it's just like, wow, like this is really effing cool. Like it doesn't matter what I do or say or whatever. Like I could, I could screw up a stat. I could screw up this and that, but like there are people out there that recognize that they, they're just interested in you. And they're also just like, get that you're genuine and like just sort of take in that information. And it's just, it's, it's one of those things where it sort of helped me realize that there's an audience for everybody, right? Like I'm not as, as, um, as smart as Pablo or Bo, uh, you know, I'm not as funny as Dan, but you know, there's something there that you know, people want to hear. And I'm, I'm totally, um, totally aware of that and okay with that, right? Like I don't compare myself to any other people anymore. And so thank you for that. But, uh, when it comes to that parade, man, like, um, that pride bowl that I, that foot flag football tournament that I played in, uh, have played in several times. That was always around my birthday. It was always my birthday weekend. And I would, I think it was, four out of five years, I spent it in Chicago. And I went to that pride parade and man, that thing is intense. <laughs> it is intense. Last year, I was stuck. I was trying to cross the street. All I was trying to do was cross the street, man. And so we were penned up in this little corner and we're just like waiting for the cops or somebody to open up so we can cross the street. Literally while I'm waiting there, a dude died behind me. They were just giving him like, uh, I mean, it's not a funny story, but they were giving him like compressions, whatever. Whoa. Like Anthony, he's like, Oh, that because Anthony used to be a firefighter medic, and he's like, Oh, that dude's dead. Like, they're just doing that to put on a show to make people not feel bad, but that dude dead. And I was just like, Wow. And like, the heat, it was just too intense. And I was like, Wow, that was the last time. That was the last time I was there. 
the previous times I was there was a great situation because I don't, you know, I didn't have to cross the street. And so uh, right. <laughs> uh, that that parade has a lot of memories for me. And it is pretty damn sad that we couldn't have one this year. Frankly, I, li- I lived at the time. I literally just moved out last week, but lived half a block from Wilton Drive, which is the main street in the neighborhood. Yeah. And that's where the parade would be in Fort Lauderdale. And like didn't happen this year. All of June went by and it was just quiet and it was pretty sad. Yeah. Thanks for that, man. I appreciate you. I appreciate you, Izzy. All right. I'm going to throw it to Aaron in Memphis now. Go ahead, Aaron. Just off the top, thank you for uh, joining us. Um, And thank you for sharing. Um, Can't hear you, Aaron. I can hear him. (laughs) Oh, okay, good. And and I'm going to have my daughter's face on here because she makes me smile. So hopefully she can bring a little happiness elsewhere. Um, (laughs) But... So the, the things you're going through right now, I know, I can't imagine how tough they are. Um, and I'm sh- they're, they're, and since there might be someone else listening to this that is going through a tough time, have you been able to find anything that has consistently um, helped you when you go in, like it, when, if, if you have a, a difficult moment or, or a tough thought, has there been anything that you found that you've been able to turn to or think about or any sort of mechanism to help you in, a, in those tough moments? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, because honestly, the first, like, first thing that goes through my mind is my Rolodex. Like, who can I talk to? Who can I, um, who can I talk to that doesn't have to say a word back to me, but understands, you know? And, and that's what I think people need. Um, like I remember specifically, um, talking, thinking to myself, as soon as I heard the news, about David uh, being potentially in hospice care, the first person that came to mind was Tony Reale. Because A, he went to my wedding on eight days notice. Um, and B, you know, gave or wrote this amazing note um, to us as our, you know, uh, essentially as our gift, I believe. I have no idea if it was actually a gift or not uh, attached to it. But that was the gift because it's what I remember. And um, he having his own issues with his own inner circle and addiction issues um, with other people in his inner circle. And so um, that was a sense of comfort for me. That's all it was, is knowing that I could call him. And, you know, even if I said two words and he filled in the time, or if, you know, I said all the words and he filled in no time, like that was necessary. And so this is one thing that, you know, I've learned over the course of the last few years that too many people are learning openly now is, um, is therapy is awesome. Like I haven't even been like, I have, I don't even have a therapist, but Anthony has been going to therapy since he was a a preteen, you know, and he's just sort of, uh, talked about how helpful it is. And of course it is helpful. And I remember, I remember watching, um, insecure on HBO. And there was the one, uh, there's this whole storyline where there's like, therapy what i'm not and it's just like what are you talking about that feels like so 2005 and not to question the writers of insecure because i love that show but uh, <laughs> if people still think that way in 2020 that therapy is something that is like 
that only weak people go to. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. And so um, that to me, whether it be somebody you pay for, whether it be somebody you can just go to that you know is going to fill that void for you or, or fulfill that for you, um, I think that's absolutely huge. And so that's the only sort of mechanism I can think of other than just you know, reminding yourself that the universe is huge and like nobody else is feeling what you're feeling. And like, you're such a small, such a small part of this world, like other stuff like that to put things in perspective, but that doesn't really help on a daily basis when you're going through emotions that you're supposed to go through. <laughs> Absolutely. We, uh, we had Jen Latta on uh, a couple nights ago and she talked to us about the documentary that she uh, uh, recently helped make and about how, just essentially the, the evolution of the conversation around therapy and around getting help uh, uh, with things and how uh, the particularly this subject amongst the macho community, the sports world and, and stuff uh, is, is changing and evolving and is just, the more people hear that it's uh, it's something that uh, is normalized that you can you can get it and you can benefit from it the obviously the the better uh, i'm going to throw it back to jeff real quick go ahead jeff so is i had i had a question for you about the the um the relationship between success and having the balls to do something like coming out for your existence so, um, I'm out in LA, um, and I listen to ESPN 710 frequently and Steve Mason, I don't know if you're familiar. He came out on the air. I was actually there. I think. I'm sorry. I was there in the studio, I believe when oh. that actually happened. Cause Ramona so, Shelburne yeah. was there and she was like, did he just say what I think he said? And so, yeah, yeah. Steve, <laughs> Steve's the best. He'll, he'll actually be out with us in, in the not too distant future, but, um, he he's brought up the fact that or he's brought up the concept that you know he wasn't comfortable coming out until he could buy his parents a house and he's figured once he bought his parents a house he's good and in for me it was more i was in the cannabis industry really early i became a lawyer as soon as i became a lawyer and made money for a cannabis company as a lawyer, I figured I could tell everybody else, get fucked. I'm good now. <laughs> so my question was, like, how how did your relative, like, success in the world, like, as it relates to your family and your parents yeah, and yeah. stuff like that, play into all that? It's such a great question because it's all relative to everybody, right? Uh, so me, just to give you my feelings on it, was... Um, when I was in college, I remember saying to myself, because I hadn't actually decided what I was going to be when I got to college. Um, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer because I knew there was good money in it and I knew I'd be a hell of a trial lawyer. Um, but I didn't want to do that because I figured it was boring. And so, you know, I, I just figured I could do, I could be successful in whatever I choose, not to be conceited, but I feel like I could be successful in whatever I choose. So I picked my path. And so then you just, uh, attach whatever that whatever success means in that field to when you're okay with you know being open and to me like it just it never I never really set a, a success level I always set a time I always said when I was 30 and like I said the same thing about and now that I think about it 
like as I thought about it over the like more recent years, I realized that I wasn't saying to myself, like, if I hit 30, I'm going to change. If I'm not happy with who I am, I'm going to change careers. And then who knows? But what I realized now is what I was doing was, oh, like if I'm going to be out, I probably shouldn't be a public figure. And so like, I'm going to tell myself that I'm not happy with my career and then move on to something more private and high. Right. And so that's bullshit. Like, why should I have to do that? Um, but ooh, I'm sorry. There was a kid in the room. Uh, and so, so I, um, I think, and you, so you just tell yourself, it doesn't matter what the, the benchmark is. You just tell yourself there's a point where nobody can question you. Right. And then that's when you come out. And so having, and I've talked to you about this project I was working on. And so like talking to a bunch of people about that same situation and you realize that everybody has a different benchmark. You know, it's just like one guy who said, you know, I knew I was gay, but I wanted to be perfect. Like I wanted every, I wanted to succeed in everything that I could do so that therefore nobody can question me eventually when I came out. So you just sort of set yourself up for whatever legs you can stand on. You, you create them, you set them up and then you're just like, all right, now I'm good. When what really sh it should be the opposite, because when you do come out and you, it creates the confidence that you're waiting for while you're, you know, figuring out what is the right time. And so I think to a to a person, every single person that I've talked to said whenever they did come out, they wish they would have come out earlier because all those things that you require to be able to come out, they're all BS. It's all BS. And it's just like, it's just, you know, everybody else creating this idea for you. It's not you. It doesn't have to happen for you to come out. You are totally free to be who you are and other people's thoughts and opinions should not keep you from being that. Well, and, and actually, what you realize is that other people's thoughts and opinions aren't what you thought they were. It's mostly just these, you know, conversations you have in your head. And there are the crazies. They're all the, you know, the outwardly um, homophobic people and what have you. But those people are going to be there anyway. And they were there when you were closeted anyway. So it's not like they're going to attack you when you come out. And so um, that's one thing I would say to a lot of people is just recognize that um, the way it works is you usually wish you would have done it earlier. And so... But um, much appreciated. As that is, it's I, I th thank you for your answer. Yeah, I think I think most people, when when they view something in hindsight, realize that the old cliche, the old uh, sayings, are absolutely accurate. In that you're your own worst critic, you're your own worst enemy quite a bit. Um, a lot of the the fears that you are absolutely certain of were just insecurities that you were projecting onto the rest of the world and that you're, you're, you know, you're 110% sure this is how the world works. And then, like you said, you, in hindsight, you just wish you had done it earlier and you had mm -hmm. gotten to be who you were, you know, and, and kind of live your truth. Um, Izzy, I just want to say, I, I see interactions that you have on Twitter sometimes um, with folks that do not realize that you are gay and are being, <laughs> are learning and being educated to that fact in real time. And I love seeing that because it, it makes me realize that these folks love you for who you are. You know, they, it's not, it's, it's, you're essentially a lot of people's, some folks only gay friend <laughs> and because of the way podcasting works because of the way, way radio works you are a voice in people's earbuds for hours and hours each week 
And hearing your story, knowing the ups and downs of it, it normalizes such a, a thing that is still in, in 2020 is still a rare experience to be up close and see firsthand unless you have a gay friend or a relative or something that you uh you know love and are close with it's it's hard to to hear these stories if if you're not if you're not up close and personal to it um it's an incredible and i know i know obviously you're not in this business you're not in this world to do that but it's an incredible service that your life and your career is offering to people who might not have the chance otherwise to experience. It's it. funny that, thank you for saying that. And it's funny that you mentioned that because um, there was this sort of shift in feelings for me once I came out, like, you know, 2015, September, 2015 is when that happened. I would say like by the middle of 2016, mm-hmm. like it's not that sports got boring for me or anything like that. It was just that, Oh, it almost felt like, okay, this is more meaning than it was before, right? Like, um, I don't want to be remembered as some NBA guy who, um, you know, had relationships with players and had a good, you know, you know, good experience and did, you know, wrote and did some sidelines and stuff. I don't want to be remembered as that. Like, that's not, I never, like, I didn't get into to journalism to be on TV. I never thought I would be on TV. Like, I just wanted to write. And I thought it was like, if, you know, if Dan was a 10 as a writer, Dan Levitar, I was like a seven and I was totally <laughs> cool with that. And I was like, yeah, I get to be the voice of a sports uh, community in Miami. It's where I grew up. And then all of a sudden I get hired by ESPN to do NBA stuff. And then it pulled me away from writing and now I'm on TV and I'm just like, well, this doesn't feel like what I wanted to happen, right, but right. this makes so much more sense, you know, to, to be able to, to have this out there and have any sort of an impact whatsoever. I think is, is huge. And so, um, the thing that, um, you know, I realized at the time is just like, and this is to, uh, this again, something that Dan mentioned to me one time back in the day, it's just like your interest or your love for it has to be greater now than it was before, because that's why people liked you. Like they didn't yeah. like you because they thought you were the closeted gay guy. No, now they like you because, <laughs> Oh man, you're the gay guy who likes sports. I'm a gay guy who likes sports. This is great. <laughs> and so like I have to, and so I said, this is why I sort of re fell in love with the sport now with sports in general. But you know, now things are totally crazy and it doesn't feel like sports anymore. But um, overall, like that sort of reinvigorated me in a sense. And so, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I don't know how to end that sentence. Easy, I'm going <laughs> to jump in real quick. Eric, you can edit this. Um, how long did you work at the newspaper? Uh, I worked at the Palm Beach Post for two years, like right out of college, the Palm Beach Post for two years. And then at the Miami Herald from 2002 to 2012, so nine plus years. Okay. I'm a newspaper guy. I've been there 13 years now. Um, have you ever heard of anybody who can write a column, write a feature, do agate, copy edit and design and news edit? No, I'm guessing that's you. Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to ask. I'm nice, a nice humble. Bro. Oh, he just wanted to ask. Yes. I mean, those last few are the <laughs> impressive ones because the <laughs> first few, I can do, but the last I one, I don't know anybody that can do everything. <laughs> Izzy, uh, I think I think we've got all the questions, and I hope we, I I hope this was cathartic for you. I, I hope I hope we we could have like I hope our platform, as small as it is, you know, uh, was did did what you hoped it would. I, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story with us. Um, 
I think I don't think there was a, a dry eye on this Zoom chat. Um, <laughs> never, never experienced this before. I, I'd say I, I only used Zoom for the first time like three or four months ago. And uh, man, I didn't realize I was going to be in, in a in a essentially a cry session. I had to <laughs> not look at the screen. I'm telling you a lot of times. I'm, like, oh, I'm just going to look at the chat. Uh, well, he's going to make me yeah, cry. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was I've, I've only got you pulled up on my screen. So I, I knew I was going to turn into a blubbery mess if I looked at anybody else. Um, let me make sure. Let's see. We did have one question. Uh, John, yes, you can bake me anything you want as long as you can deliver it um, in some dry ice or something. I'm probably <laughs> not going to meet you to pick it up. <laughs> well, if, uh, is that John in Miami? Yes. John Get off of that. Okay. I've seen his food pics. Um, I would absolutely take him up on whatever he wants to make you. All Izzy. right. Um, Izzy, thank you so much. I, I know we've all uh, we, we've just said that like 75 times, but it can't be said enough, uh, for, for being with us tonight and for, for sharing that story. Um, you are absolutely welcome to crash any other interview we have. It is always a delight. <laughs> you know, I will. You know I, I will. I, it, it's the best whenever you, your, uh, your screen pops up and you're sitting there looking cool as hell on your couch or driving. I, well, now, the driving one, the driving one was a little dangerous, <laughs> but I knew Pablo wasn't going to be on forever. So I, I had to get in quick. I didn't, I didn't even get it out of my mouth because suddenly I realized I was throwing, throwing. <laughs> no, you that's fine. That's um, fine. You could tell I was responsible. I was looking at oh, you were, you were talking to Pablo. You, did, you didn't look at the screen one time, one time. So he was very safe. Everybody don't, don't, uh, don't, uh, narc on him at all. <laughs> Um, Izzy, thank you again, man. Uh, for you guys for being are the best. Launched. You're all friends in my book, so um, we'll talk next time. All right. Oh yeah, thank, thank you, Izzy. 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 Thank you,